Hey, Gordo, why don't you tell us a story? Uh, I don't know. Oh, come on. Yeah, come on, Gordo. Not one of your horror stories, okay? I don't want to hear no horror stories. I'm not up for that, man. Welcome to Now Playing's Different Seasons Retrospective Series. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. You'd have to be brilliant. Can you do that? I know I can. Join Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob as they review the film adaptations from Stephen King's 1982 collection, The Shawshank Redemption. In 1966, Andy Dufresne escaped from Shawshank Prison. All they found of him was a muddy set of prison clothes and an old rock hammer. I remember thinking it would take a man 600 years to tunnel through the wall with it. Old Andy did it in less than 20. Apt pupil. He wanted to know everything. That was how he put it, yes. Everything. And stand by me. I was 12 going on 13 the first time I saw a dead human being. It happened in the summer of 1959, a long time ago. But only if you measure in terms of years. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue to look at all the movies based on the writings of Stephen King. We talked into the night. The kind of talk that seemed important until you discover girls. And join Arnie at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Stephen King's books and short stories. Where do you get this shit? I read it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Rule number one, no blasphemy. I'll not have the Lord's name taken in vain in my prison. Listener discretion is advised. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, or get busy dying. Today we're discussing Stand By Me. Starring Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, Kiefer Sutherland, directed by Rob Reiner. This is the now playing co-host who will always stand by you, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob, and if either one of you assholes had $2,000, I'd kill you myself. (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) I'm glad we're recording a movie about standing by each other. I were cheap. I don't need a whole lot of money. <laughs> so we are here with the last Stephen King film from Different Seasons. Someday we may have to amend this. There is a fourth story in Different Seasons that has never been adapted. It may never be adapted. It feels more like a Tales from the Crypt episode than a movie, but it's King. If he sold the rights, somebody will make it. But we're ending with the first. We've kind of gone in a weird order with this, as 1986, Stephen King's The Body became Stand By Me. Yeah, because we do publication order, this was structured in the book as the third chapter. Why is that? Why is this one considered, I guess each story was a season. Shawshank Redemption was spring, Hope Springs Eternal. Hope Springs Eternal makes sense. Apt Pupil, was that summer? It was Summer of Corruption. That one does not Uh, make sense to me. 
Mm-mm. Weird, okay. The body was fall from innocence, and you can definitely see that. And then the last one, the breathing method, a winter's tale. Okay, strange. I would ca- think of this as a summer movie. It was a summer movie. It came out in our what we've now storied as one of the greatest movie summers of all time, summer of 86. It came out about 30 years ago, almost to the day. Yeah, late August movie. A movie that takes place in early September, so all technically summer, but as this is about 12-year-old boys on the weekend before they go back to school, when I was a kid, school was when fall started, you know? It wasn't September 21st, it was in August when I had to go back, and summer was in late May, early June when I got out of school, so I could see his rationale. Sure. And boy, this was a big one because I am of the age of these boys. Arnie, you and I were going into junior high when this movie was coming out. And so, wow, here was a movie that spoke to us. It had Corey Feldman. It had (laughs) Stephen King connection. I desperately wanted to go to the movie theaters and see it, but I could not because it was R-rated. Who picked this? I mean, an R-rated kids movie. I remember my father tortured me with this movie. Him and my mom saw it. I couldn't see it because there was too many swears because <laughs> it was R-rated. But they're like, oh, my gosh. And then there's this Barfer Rama scene. And then this is such a great movie. You're going to have to wait a few years till you can actually <laughs> see it. Like, oh, I wanted to see this movie so bad. I mean, they bought the soundtrack. This got me hooked into oldies. Like, just listen to this tape over and over. But, yeah, I was not allowed to see it because Mm-mm. of all the swearing. And I remember my dad like discussing this with his siblings are like we didn't swear this much did other people swear this much in the 50s (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure they did because king wrote this off his own recollections and so i think it's fair to say that a certain set of children did as for the summer of 86 i honestly believe this weekend was the weekend i saw howard the duck in theaters for the third time (laughs) i did not know stand by me was a king film I didn't even see it until 1988 when Star Trek The Next Generation, I was really becoming a hardcore Trekkie. I wanted to be Will Wheaton on the bridge of the Enterprise. So I looked up his oeuvre and watched The Curse and Stand By Me. And I was a bonus. It's got a Corey. I'm not sure when I first originally saw this, but I did not know it was a King film until 1995 when I was freshman in college taking literature and film where you just read books and then watched the movies and discussed adaptation and redid the body. Like my King protest against the books, my boycott, I had to break that because we were required to read this book. So I actually have a college paper somewhere written about the body comparing it to Stand By Me. Oh, interesting. Now, this to me, it was, I desperately wanted to see it. And I can remember talking to people in seventh grade who had envious, picking their brain for details because their parents were cool enough to take them to the R-rated movie. I don't know why I couldn't. My parents let me watch Alien when I was seven. Yeah, you saw Alien when you were a little kid. I don't get it, (laughs) but I think maybe they just didn't want to go to the movie. So they told me no, and I had to wait for video. But boy, when it came out, I couldn't wait to rent it. I saw it, and I just remember the big thing, I mentioned it last week, was, are you going to cry? You know, I went through a phase where I'm like, no movie can make me cry. I won't let it happen. And then I saw the color purple, and I'm like, damn it! No movie will ever again make me cry. And this was the movie that broke me again. I cried writing the plot summary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even joking. I like, but, but, it's sad. 
Yeah. Now this one, like I said, because I was exactly the age of these kids and because my experience with going from childhood into junior high was exactly the same. Okay, I didn't find a dead body. <laughs> but Arnie and I did form a detective agency and we busted some drug dealers and we did have adventures. We legitimately came across a baggie of cocaine, I kid you not. Yeah, but all of that boyhood adventure stuff did end with seventh grade. And I do remember feeling you moved away to Florida afterwards and just things felt different. People I considered friends were no longer my friends. And it was a time of great upheaval. And I remember really feeling like, wow, I don't understand the world anymore. I felt a lot of that happened at fifth grade, really. But yes, junior high was a totally different thing. Junior high is awful. Everyone should skip it. Mm -hmm. Seventh grade is my least favorite grade of all the grades. I felt like I went from being a very popular kid and well socialized to being one that just wanted to go home and watch TV all the time. Yeah, that was when you actually started being able to converse with me about television shows. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. Yeah, I did. Every night I just watched TV and I just stopped hanging out with kids and childhood ended. And so I think a movie about that, you know, kids want to see, but when you put an R on it, particularly back in the 80s, your target demographic just doesn't get to see it until it's on television. I think you are right in one regard, though, because I think about sixth grade and under, 11 and under, and girls weren't really a high priority for me. A little bit of a priority, but that did really change in seventh grade. I had my first girlfriend and all of that. Yeah, no, I remember junior high, I'm like, I don't know if I'm allowed to like Star Wars anymore, but I'm liking these boobies that are starting to sprout out <laughs> everywhere. Like, it's just such a confusing time. But the movie was a hit. It's worth pointing out. We're, we're talking about it, and it is, I think... Box office-wise, the biggest hit of all the films here connected with the Different Seasons book. Yeah, this film, there have been a lot of 30th anniversary articles published, which were reprints of 25th anniversary articles published. <laughs> but this was a struggle to get made. King didn't want to sell the rights because these were personal stories. Almost everything you see in this movie in some way happened to King other than the dead body. And I'll get into that on Books and Nachos someday. But he didn't want someone to make this movie. And there were a couple screenwriters, Bruce Evans and Reynold Gideon. But their script was a straight adaptation of King's novella, which does differ in a few key points from this movie. And... Reiner got on board, saw a way to coalesce it and convince King. And then there were all kinds of money troubles. They couldn't find a studio to fund it. They finally got Embassy Films to fund it. And then Embassy Films was sold to Columbia. And Columbia said, we already passed on this movie, so your funding is gone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Tough. Yeah. Movie making business. Yeah. Your friends, just like junior high school, suddenly they're not <laughs> your friends anymore. So how much did they make this for? Probably pennies, right? 7.5 million that Norman Lear put up personally for this mm. film because Norman Lear was the owner of Embassy. He was the one who greenlit it. And they were, understand, they were in Oregon prepping to shoot. The whole crew was there. The cast was there. They were about to say action for the first time when they got the call, your money's gone. Oof. And so Norman Lear stepped in and wrote a $7.5 million check. The official budget on this is $8 million. And then even after they made it, no film company wanted to distribute it. They couldn't find a distributor anywhere. Because of the market. Again, I think when you're targeting kids, 
It needs to be like the Sandlot. It needs to have a rating that can support them. But when kids act like cursing adults, yeah. I mean, the question is, are baby boomers going to turn out to reminisce about their childhood? But you got to keep in mind the, the 80s, the late 80s especially, and this movie may be the culprit, was awash with 50s nostalgia. I do think that this is the first movie to start that trend of naming your movie after a 60s pop song because shortly thereafter we'd have Johnny Be Good, Can't Buy Me Love, My Girl, Only the Lonely, Great Balls of Fire. If they had waited, if this movie had come out a couple months later, Blue Velvet would have that crown. But I do think that this was the one that kicked off that trend. Oh, but that is so many songs though. 16 Candles in 84, Soul Man was the same year as this. What about Sarah Jessica Parker's Girls Just Want to Have Fun in 85? I mean, people are hard up for titles. Rob Reiner was hard up for a title. All he knew is you cannot call this movie The Body. You just can't <laughs> call it that and expect people to go. But they filmed this whole thing just calling it The Body. They didn't know what to do. But Reiner pulled the soundtrack from his own recollection of being a young person in the 50s. Every song in here is one of his favorites. He knew Stand By Me was going to be the credits song. And then finally, in editing, they're like, why don't we just name it after this song that we have strewn throughout the whole film? Yeah. I, I definitely feel that was a part of the marketing. They ended up realizing that in order to sell this movie to the boomers, you have to sell that as a soundtrack. And I remember that was what was featured. Lollipop and just seeing kids, you know, bopping along a train track, singing a song was a, a lot of what they teased us with. And yeah, what year was Big Chill? 83. 83. It did the same thing, right? I mean, I love those soundtracks. I'm telling you, road trips as a kid, it was Big Chill and Stand By Me. That, yeah. like, that's all my parents played. Oh, you too? Uh, yeah, my parents loved, I mean, they were of that generation and they loved oldies and I actually rebelled. Like, we would have radio fights of like, <laughs> all right, we're going to drive until this radio station fades out, but the next one I'm going to find Billy Idol and Duran Duran. I'm not going <laughs> to sit through Yakety Yak again. You, I remember you telling me that like your parents at one point were doing the get a job, Shana na not to you every day. <laughs> yeah, they they didn't ever let that up really, and, and probably still live as if Duke of Earl is the best song ever recorded. But I always had an irritation with that era. Honestly, I have no affection for fifties ro early rock and roll, including Elvis. I'm not a fan of Elvis really, although I do like some of his songs. But I did come around. A basically because of movies and the late 80s and Dirty Dancing and all of this, to 50s music. I did buy the Big Chill soundtrack, Stand By Me, Dirty Dancing, and really kind of had a time going back to that era of early rock and roll. It definitely has a place. There were a lot of like CD collections on TV that I picked up, so I got an <laughs> education. Yeah, no, it was stuff I liked as a kid, and then as I became a teenager, I liked the punk rock version where the Ramones and the Clash, they just played the same stuff but faster and dirtier. Well, the way this movie found distribution is perhaps the most unlikely thing of all. Every single studio passed, and... They thought they would just have to do like a one-time art house showing and go to video. But they went back to Columbia one last time. And Columbia's like, we've passed on this so many times. Why do you keep coming to us? But there'd been a change in leadership. The senior exec there took it to his house and just like showed it to a bunch of people. And everybody was lukewarm except his two 
teenage daughters who halfway through the movie were enthralled with River Phoenix. And because of ah. their reaction, <laughs> mm-hmm. this film got distributed wide and made over $50 million. But River Phoenix, we had seen him in theaters, Stuart, you and I together in The Explorers. Uh-huh. I loved the first three-fourths of that movie and then turned on it violently. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't no memories of it. I haven't seen it since we saw it in theater, Stuart. Yeah. But all I remember is, a horse is a horse, of course, of course. That's, that's mm. all I remember is an alien singing that. That's, don't even, you don't need to remember anything else about <laughs> it. But yeah, this is a big movie for cast and crew. I mean, Rob Reiner was still meathead to most people. He had appeared on a sitcom in the 70s with Norman Lear. All in the Family, and he had made Spinal Tap and The Sure Thing, comedies. No one would have thought that this would have been in his wheelhouse to do. This is a movie that changed his career. All the kids got a bump out of it. We would all see them again in various things. I I do feel like, yeah, it it changed everyone involved. Reiner went on and on in every bonus feature. He told the same stories a lot of times about how this was his first real personal movie. Apparently, he had a difficult relationship with his father. Carl Reiner felt like he wasn't living up to his father's expectations. And he said this was the first movie he ever made that had his sensibilities and he felt he was telling his story, even though King originally wrote it. And he said, if people like this movie, they'll like the other stuff I do. And if they don't, then I'm just not going to have mainstream appeal. And yeah, I liked The Sure Thing, which I had actually seen before I saw this movie. I was, you know, big into John Cusack after Better Off Dead and The Sure Thing. A fun little rom-com. It's okay. I like the movies it was inspired by. It was a throwback to the 30s screwball comedy. And it is how we got John Cusack here in a cameo. Mm Mm-hmm. But yes, this was career-defining for so many of them. And as we go through, I've got some behind-the-scenes stories that may bear out where their careers went. Yeah, indeed. In so many directions. Yeah. Arnie, let's get to the plot. We can get into Stand By Me. Richard Dreyfus plays Gordon Lachance, a 40-year-old writer who finds out his childhood friend has died. He proceeds to write, or in the film narrate, a tale of his youth when he first saw a dead body. In this story, it's 1959 and young Gordy is played by Will Wheaton. He's 12 and his older brother recently died in a car accident. Gordy's parents always preferred their older sports hero son and now Gordy is practically ignored by his parents. But his true family are his three close friends. Chris, played by River Phoenix, is a child from a home of drunks and thieves, and that relation has given him a bad reputation. Teddy, played by Corey Feldman, has a deformed ear from when his father went insane and put Teddy's head on the stove. Teddy, now, has some anger issues and a bit of a death wish. Vern, played by Jerry O'Connell, is the chubby, simple, sweet-natured one of the group. All four are in their summer between grade school and junior high, about to enter a new stage of life. This mission starts when Vern overhears his greaser brother Billy saying he found a dead body in the woods. As Billy had stolen a car, he didn't report it to the police, but it's obviously the body of Ray Brower, a child their age who had gone missing when out picking blueberries. Kids think finding the body would get them in the news and they'll be heroes, so they set out on foot for the 20-30 to mile hike to the body. For protection, Chris steals his father's pistol. Along the way, they have several close encounters, one with a train, one with a mean garbage dump worker, and each boy has their personal moment of emotional pain shared with their friends. 
but they don't know they're in a race to the body. Billy spilled the beans about the corpse to greaser thug Ace Merrill, played by Kiefer Sutherland. Ace also wants the publicity, so his gang sets out to the body. The two groups arrive at almost the same time, and Ace is ready to literally kill the boys with a switchblade if they don't scram, but Gordy pulls the gun on Ace. Outmatched, Ace and his gang retreat, but during their trek, the four boys matured and realized that a dead boy their age isn't an adventure. So they make an anonymous phone call to the police and walk home. Then we're told the group quickly fell apart. In junior high, Vern and Teddy took shop classes while Gordy helped Chris get into college prep. And we're told Vern is now a father and construction worker. Teddy spent time in jail and still lives in Castle Rock. And Chris became a lawyer. And at a fast food restaurant, Chris tried to break up an argument and was stabbed in the throat and died. And with that final somber note to his story, adult Gordon goes to the beach with his own tween-age son and his son's friend, showing he is a good father, unlike the home where he was raised, as credits roll. I had forgotten about Richard Dreyfus. I had forgotten a lot. I have not seen this movie since video in the 80s. And while I had great affection for it then, and I thought I remembered many of the beats of the story, this is not even in the original King work. That It's narrated by someone, but we don't get to know him in a frame story. It's narrated by Stephen King, right? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, essentially, yeah. That's the way I took it. There is... So many parallels there. It's hysterical. But a lot of what is described in King's book happens here. I mean, at the end of the book, the narrator, older Gordon, talks about how he found out Chris had died and had to leave. He couldn't break down in front of his wife. He had to be alone to process that. And here, when we start, we have Richard Dreyfus in a car alone. I mean, they really, a lot of this dialogue, they played very close to King's original story here. And by the way, this all this Richard Dreyfus stuff is reshoots. It was originally going to be David Dukes, who I know best from Rawhead Rex. We will talk about this David Dukes when we get to Rose Red, the Stephen King miniseries. Mm, about five years from now. Okay. <laughs> that one comes real late. Yeah. And he's done some other stuff, but apparently he was great in the film scenes and just didn't deliver the right voiceover. Richard Dreyfus and Rob Reiner have been friends since they were about this age. They met at like age 15. So he called in Dreyfus to do this little frame story. Of course, I got to ask this. I, I asked it about Shawshank, but do we even need this? Do we need a frame story? Does it spoil too much of the surprise to know that Chris dies as an adult to what is going to essentially be his coming of age story a few minutes later? I was just going to bring up a similar point because at least Stuart and I complained a lot about the over narration by Morgan Freeman in Shawshank Redemption. And I feel like we have to address it now because, yeah, there is narration. I feel like the difference here is this is a frame story. This is someone telling us the story, at least typing it out. So we're getting little pieces of third party omniscient narration that you couldn't just fit in the story. Later on, there's going to be a scene where Gordy sees a deer and that's going to be a big moment. And we got to know that he's never told anyone about that moment until older Gordy's type in this story. So I do feel like their narration here serves a better purpose. It's just not beating us over the head over and over again like I felt they did in Shawshank. Yeah, it's used less. There's less of it. This movie isn't as long and they don't have as many moments where it's intruded upon. I did feel the Shawshank flashback though. Watching these two movies just a couple of weeks apart, it was very telling that when 
Darabont made Shawshank, he had to be looking at this movie for inspiration, right? He had to see how another dramatic King novella, even if it wasn't from the same collection, though this was, was told. And how did you take something that was told in the first person and adapted? Those were both the cases with Red and with Stand By Me or The Body. And so Darabont was following this pattern, and we um, we discussed what effect that had. Yeah, I think I would have preferred not to see Dreyfus here at the beginning. To have his voice and just think of him as a narrator might have been a better choice, I think, because that way we don't know the fate of any of these kids when they set out for their adventure. And maybe he we only see him in that end scene. That's, that's the only thing I would say. But overall, yeah, what I really had a struggle with in Shawshank I feel like adds to the story here. It's important that we have an adult perspective commenting on 1959. I agree. And you know what I think this opening scene does, though? As you mentioned, this is an R-rated film. The kids who star in this film can't get in to see this film. So you're selling this as a story to adults. And by showing Richard Dreyfuss there, you're telling the adults who bought a ticket, hey, this is really about you and remember when you were that age. Sure. You know, and another thing about proximity to the other stories in different seasons is coming just after at Pupil, we realize that King, I think he sees boyhood as being obsessed with violence. The first thing we see Gordy doing here as a 12-year-old is going to get crime magazines and reading stories about violent murders and gangsters and what have you. I think that King allows the other stories in the collection to comment on it. Later, we're going to find out one of these kids is going to wind up in prison. I think that it works in that way. I'm not sure if breathing method really does, but (laughs) the other three stories really do seem to comment on different stages of a man's life. And that's that comes through to me here in the opening. Yeah, the fact that this is really kicked off by Vern saying, you guys want to go see a dead body, which is such a classic line from this movie. I Like, that sums up this movie in one line. Yeah, it, it, there is that feeling of adolescence, and at least with male adolescence and violence. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite the same as tell me about your World War II yes. death <laughs> camp experiences. But I do feel like with the innocence of childhood, we tend to want to see innocence as purity. But sometimes that can mean naivete. Like, you just don't recognize how something is bad. And yeah, what I like about this story is that they start out thinking naively that this is going to be a cool adventure that makes them heroes. And over the course, they're going to realize that we need to be more respectful. And that was something I definitely remembered struggling with when I watched it as a kid. I never understood why they couldn't take the body home and be the heroes. That was the point that they start out here. But it's clearly the right emphasis to not include that. I looked at these stories in different seasons, and you know what I really saw as the biggest parallel among the first three is male friendships. We talked about it at length with Shawshank between Red and Andy, but even in Apt Pupil, we didn't talk about it as much as far as friendships, but it is a weird kind of mentorship or friendship, and here we have another young friendship. And what I said way back in my books and nachos on Carrie is I feel King has an innate ability to remember and recall being a child and what it's like. Whereas so many adults, I know growing up, I felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders in second fucking grade. And my mom's just like, 
you have no problems. You're a child. You don't know what problems are. But when you're a kid, you feel like you do have them. You're stressed out about being picked at last in gym class or whatever it is. You have a test that you didn't study for. Are you going to ask this girl out and what will she say? I mean, every day is a struggle and King taps into that. I think that's really why he hits an adolescent audience. The people who read him, like me, often found him when they were adolescents and grew into reading him as an adult. Not to mention he's contraband. You weren't supposed to read Stephen King because he wrote about those horrible horror stories. And, well, then I want to read them. But, yeah, I agree with you. He definitely connected with me at a very early age. And what I really like about this movie then and now is his ability to allow the characters to talk like kids. The slang, the way that they, you know, put skin on it and have secret knocks to their clubhouse and all those things that you do forget about as you become adult because they're not a part of your day-to-day. But as a kid, this defines you. The fact that Vern has like a jar of pennies that he's buried and made a map to, I swear I did that as a kid. (laughs) Yeah. I did the same thing. I actually buried money in somebody's yard and went back to look for it Although I knew exactly where I put it, that money was gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, clubhouses, all of this stuff here, even though it is set in 1959, and I'm not grooving to the music then or now, I do feel instantly transported back to that time in my life. I gotta ask, which one of these kids do you think you would be if you were in this movie? Because I looked at it. And I feel like I have the soul of Gordy, but I probably came off a lot like Vern. <laughs> no, I would, I, yeah, I, I would want to be Chris, but I was a chubby kid. I was Vern, and I have not turned out slim and muscular like Jerry O'Connell did. <laughs> You're not married to Rebecca Romaine Stavos, you mean? No, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, that is the surprise here. Let's talk about our young stars in the making. All of them, maybe this word stars is a little bit too grandiose, but all of them would go on to have some kind of notoriety as adult actors. We know them all. Obviously, the big one here, River Phoenix, not the least which is that he only has what, eight more years of life before he is prematurely taken. Yeah. And they talked a lot about River on the bonus features. And I'm going to tie his story in with Corey's because you look at Corey Feldman's career and he's honestly great in this film. Every child in this film is amazing. It may be his best film. I I haven't seen every Corey film like you, Artie, but (laughs) I do feel like he's legitimately acting in this film. Do you think Dream a Little Dream 2 has a chance of beating this movie? (laughs) Never seen it. That's what I mean. Of course you haven't seen every Corey movie, but... I have. (laughs) I think we can easily say that this is his best film. Well, what Reiner talked about is how he had to find kids who already embodied this, right? You had to find somebody who was pretty strong to play Chris. You had to find somebody who was pretty innocent and sensitive to play Gordy. And he had a real hard time finding somebody angry enough to play Teddy. But you look at Corey Feldman's history, and you read his choreography, you know he had a really rough home life, he was abused, he had really awful stage parents. 
this really I view as the beginning of the end for him because I was thinking I'm like he is so good here and I loved him in Goonies and Gremlins. No, that's right. He's good in Goonies, but this is much more dramatic. Yeah, this is the apex of his work. And I like, what did he do after this? The Lost Boys. I love that movie, but he's really <laughs> weird in it, right? Yes. <laughs> and then License to Drive and things. All right. He told a story that on the set, he was just dropped off by his parents. And River was pretty much the same way. Will Wheaton's parents were there and Jerry O'Connell's parents were there because this was their first movies each. The parents were still nervous. So River and Corey would go out among the townies and Corey says this was his first time drinking and he drank hard. He would drink 40s and smoke weed and River was there with him. River lost his virginity while filming this. And this is when both of their substance abuse problems started, right here. Mm. And you look at their future work, and River did great work. Corey, maybe not, but River did some great work. But this movie was at the age where they were troubled enough that they began descending into drug abuse and alcoholism. And not to be too cruel, I, I agree, Corey, this is the best Corey Feldman will do, but I also think that there is something that people often cite about River Phoenix being on the level of a James Dean Perhaps that's an exaggeration, but clearly he's good here. He is, to me, clearly heads and tails a better, giving a more sophisticated performance than any of the other kids in this film. Yeah, I really feel like River and Corey, they're, dramatically, their acting is of the highest level in this film. Will Wheaton, I mean, he's good. He plays a more introverted role, though. It's just a different role. And Jerry, he's playing the goofy kid. I mean... Yeah, what River Phoenix does, it's this seems like someone, I, I don't know how much he'd done before this, but I don't know if it's luck of the casting or, or just they got the right kids at the right time. Just a, a great cast here. Yeah, they got the right kids at the right time, but River was experienced. Corey was the most experienced one on the set. They all looked up to Corey, but River had done television. He had done Explorers, but... Just because we always like looking at the alternate universe. Oh, okay. Give it to me. Instead of River Phoenix, the job was offered to Corey Haim. Oh, this could have been a Corey's film. This oh. could have been a Corey film. Wow, Haim would not be up to that. Okay. <laughs> he turned it down to go do Lucas with Charlie Sheen. and Okay. I mean, that has its own fans, and I, I get that as a choice. It was a movie more centered around him, so why wouldn't he do that? But I think we're all better off that he passed. Also, Ethan Hawke and Sean Astin. Sure. I can see that. And as Gordy, it was Will Wheaton, almost Stephen Dorff, fresh off the gate. <laughs> okay. I mean, I haven't liked a lot of what I've seen of Stephen Dorff, but I've seen him give credible dramatic performances. And yeah, who knows? Maybe it would have put him his whole career in a different trajectory. He might have been on Star Trek. But yeah, I think these kids are amazing with the work they do. But I do think they bring a lot of themselves to the role. And that's what Reiner said, is you had to find kids who just were these kids and then give them lines. Nobody at this age is a trained thespian. None of them had really taken acting classes. But they all had the right personalities to be these characters. And so he hired them. The biggest risk was Jerry O'Connell and just kind of hope that when they get there, they're able to be given lines as well as they can just be themselves. Which is why I always, you know, I, I always compliment. I've seen great child performances. We all have. But I always like to cite the director in that case. I mean, M. Night Shyamalan deserves credit for Haley Joel Osment as much 
much as Haley Joel Osment. I mean, you need somebody there that can pull it out. And it's also editing and casting director, too. But it is the support team around the kids that are going to get them at their best. Even if they're good natural actors, they haven't had the, the life experience to even know who they are yet, much less inhabit a different character. So I do feel like it's Reiner that probably deserves the most praise for yeah, collecting these four, casting them right, and then giving them room to give very fluid, believable adult performances here. These are kids that are going to smoke and drink and, yeah, want to go lie to their parents and go see a dead body. I'll agree with you. The one thing I'll say, though, is Reiner pulled out such great performances during the commentary, he would just sit there and point to long takes. And basically, he did most of this by getting one good take. There are several scenes that are just continuous long shots, a master shot of the four of them, and it doesn't cut for a long time. So it's not like they gave them one line, and kind of like how we talk about bad action scenes, kind of like what we talked about with Jason Bourne, how it's like two punches and then it cuts and two punches. Here, these kids stay in their performance, and Reiner's the one who did it. He got them all there. Yeah. You ask which one I identify with, I'd probably go with Gordy. None of them is a pure matchup, but I do really remember feeling overshadowed by my older brother. He didn't die, and my parents didn't make me feel worthless, but I do remember <laughs> always living in him, his shadow here. And these early scenes, the whole movie really seems structured to make it the story of his coming of age. With the others... You know, we, we know their story as well, but I feel like the important one is Gordy. And I think he was the one I really identified with when I saw the movie. Yeah, I do remember from that novella, like he would keep having visions of like his dead brother popping out. That that doesn't happen here. We get some flashbacks of John Cusack and, and how his parents reacted once he was gone. But yeah, they, they toned down that horror element that I remember being in that novella. They change a lot of things in Gordy's story. It was Reiner who said, let's make this Gordy's movie, by the way. The writers did a straight adaptation of King's novella in which the main character is Chris. Gordy is the narrator, but he doesn't necessarily have as big an arc as Chris does. And here, really, Will Wheaton does feel like the star, even if River Phoenix might be the one who's the heart of the movie. It is Gordy's story about his dead brother, his parents... I really related to Gordy in the novella because my parents were older. My youngest sibling was much older than me. These are all things included in the short story that were kind of modified here. The older brother, John Cusack in a cameo. Reiner felt he needed a really good actor and the only way he could get somebody good in that role was to call in a favor from his sure thing star. He's not that much older than Gordy. He died in a car accident. He's in college, so he's, they, they mentioned that he, there's a big game. Well, I don't know. I think he's in various periods. The scout's there. He's a senior, I think. Yeah, I thought he was a high school senior. I think he is in one flashback, and then I remember seeing a college pennant when Gordy goes into the room to get his canteen when he's decided he's going to leave. He doesn't even have to lie to his parents. They don't even ask what he's doing. But I remember seeing like a Michigan State. I mean, I guess that could be for anything. But I presume that the guy had already gone and spent a year at college. He looked like it. I mean, John Cusack does not look like a 16-year-old. No. But, you know, even six years is a lot less than the 10 that was in the book. I mean, that makes a big difference when you're a kid, not so much when you're middle-aged. But also, in the book, he died on an army base. He enlisted. And here, it just is 
car accident. The one thing this movie doesn't tell me, and I had to go to the book for, is why is it this movie start by saying I was 12 years old when I first saw a dead body when he went to his brother's funeral? The novella makes it explicit that the wreck was so bad it was a closed casket funeral and Gordy never saw that body. Oh, interesting. No, I just, I feel there's a difference between seeing a body at a funeral and, and seeing a dead body in the wild. That never bothered me. Yeah, just, it was one of those things that as I get older and go to more funerals, they're all open casket. And I remember my very first funeral seeing my very first dead body. I've never found a corpse out in the wild, but I'll tell you the first time I saw a dead body and it was in a funeral home and it was frightening. Yep. One of my earliest memories. I was much younger than this character. But yeah, they just start off in a treehouse. There's some great camaraderie and great lines here, but they don't waste much time getting into it. It's within the first few minutes that they are set off on their mission to find a body. Like you said, Stuart, this is a short movie. It's 90 minutes. I sat down expecting Shawshank. I, like, blocked the evening. And <laughs> mm -hmm. No, and, and I think that's right. I mean, you wouldn't want to let it linger too much. About Another thing about the change from the story, though, you mentioned Shawshank. I do feel like it plays like a junior version of Shawshank when you read it. When it is about one character admiring this other character... Chris is sort of like the glue that holds them all together. He does have the same qualities that Andy Dufresne has of this being almost too perfect for the world kind of martyr. The thing that I liked about the story, though, is it was shown again and again that Chris was their leader. He was the strongest of them. He was the toughest of them. He had a reason to lead. Here in early voiceover, we're told Chris is the leader. You wouldn't get that from watching this movie. Oh, I do. The body language. Yeah, the way he puts his arm around the kids and makes fights end and is always, you know, he pulls Corey Feldman off the tracks. I, I definitely feel like he's smarter and looking out for these kind of dumber kids that don't quite have it together yet. Yeah, even though he's the one that stole the milk money or at least was blamed for it, We'll find out about that story later on. Yeah, I do feel like he's a good kid. Like, he is this leader that's looking out for the best. Again, that's Andy Dufresne, right? He was wrongly accused of his wife's murder. I felt like they're very similar. Oh, that's true. But we know Chris is a bad kid because he has a bad brother. Well, so does Vern. That was one thing that I felt was a little bit much, is we've got Ace Merrill's gang, and Vern... Vern has older brother Billy, who's the one who found the body... Vern was under the front porch digging for his pennies, as you mentioned. And Billy's telling his friend Charlie about how they found the body when they stole a car. So Vern kicks this off. But Chris, River Phoenix's character, has an older brother, Eyeball Chambers, who's in the gang too. So I felt like there were more parallels there than perhaps were ever explained in either the novella or this story. I mean... Was Gordy's older brother running with Ace before he died in a car accident? No, I, th I just, I get the picture. Now, this isn't Castle Rock, Maine, even though it's a Stephen King story. This is, what, the Northwest, I believe, somewhere. Castle Rock, Oregon. That's right, yes. They, they moved it to the other coast. 
But I feel like this is small town. Everyone knows everyone. You, you got a bad brother, then you got their bad reputation. I don't think everyone's in the same clique. I, you know, Gordy's brother was a jock. He hung out with the jocks, not the greasers. Yeah, and we're going to see some jock-greaser rivalry later. Keith Sutherland is going to play chicken. I definitely feel like it can be one or the other. And since maybe Vern's not rich enough, his family, they might be more inclined to be a Cobra than make the football team. Was I the only one thinking Cobra Kai when they were getting their Cobras tattoos? <laughs> I don't remember Cobra being in this story. Maybe it was, but uh, I can definitely say when I read the story, I didn't picture Keith or Sutherland. The character felt older. I think he has a girlfriend and he just felt maybe more like a 20-something, but... Then again, when you're a kid, Keith or Sutherland does look so much older than these 12-year-olds. So I can see why he would have the, the threat of being an authority figure in an adult. Oh, he is menacing in this movie. This was his first American film. Rob Reiner pats himself on the back for breaking Kiefer Sutherland wide. But he would go right from this with Corey to Lost Boys and play another menacing thug. Yeah, I feel like the two roles have a lot of similarities in them just not a vampire here what's really funny to me is there's a scene in the novella the body where the kids talk about hanging from the train trellis tracks just like they do in the lost boys in case a train comes they'll just climb under and hang off of it till the train passes i'm like oh my god yeah i think lost boys did want to jump on what Stand By Me had going for it. But I think it's also fair to say Stand By Me, probably these kids had just seen Goonies, and God knows Corey Feldman probably didn't shut up about Goonies, that some of these <laughs> early moments, you know, with the fat kid that didn't know the knock and they're not going to let into the clubhouse, felt a little chunk. I felt a little bit about this adventure, that it, it had a Goonies quality to it as well. And Goonies, I don't know if Corey Feldman ever went home. It was also filmed in Oregon. He was like, I'm here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and just like Goonies is kind of episodic, like we have this booby trap and this booby trap, I feel like this film kind of plays those same beats. There's not booby traps, but, you know, we're going to have a Mickey Mouse versus Superman conversation, and then, you know, we're going to cross a bridge with a train, then we're going to have leeches, and then we're going to have a story about barfing. Like, it does almost feel like we get just skits along the way to keep the story moving. Credit where credit's due. This was all taken directly from King's story published way before Goonies, and Feldman told how Goonies had a deleted scene where the kids all had to pull leeches off each other. So I'm more inclined to think that the makers of Goonies read Stand By Me than I am to think <laughs> Stand By Me ripped off the Goonies. Yeah, again, I'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything, but knowing that this movie came out a full year afterwards with one of the stars of the Goonies and some of these things in the opening, it certainly was the vibe of these early scenes, was that, again, this felt lighthearted, an adventure. I don't think I was prepared for how dramatic, again, the tears. I, when I was watching this as a kid, I'm like, I'm not going to cry at this. This is cool. And, you know, I don't think I knew where it was going to go emotionally. I'll agree with you. Keep in mind, when I saw this, I was probably, I think, 13 years old. I was still 13. I turned 14 later that year. And I looked at this. I'm like, Corey, Will Wheaton, I expected a Goonies. And I don't know that I fully appreciated the emotional depth of this until possibly this watching, legitimately. I haven't seen it in a while. Maybe if I saw it in the 90s, I did. But right now... I'm the age of Richard Dreyfuss's character here. <laughs> yeah. This hit home hard. 
Yeah, no, I would say before that this was just a comedy. It, now, it is a comedy. There's funny stuff. But, yeah, it has much more dramatic weight the older you get. Yeah, I wouldn't call this... It's not Meatballs. To me, Meatballs is a, like a youth comedy. That This definitely has a dramatic aspect to it. The further they get away from their small town. Early scenes... Well, I guess it's a little scary when they get confronted by Keith or Sutherland and, I guess, River Phoenix's brother. That the eyeball is actually his older brother beating up on him and making Gordy give up his brother's baseball cap. And they, they start off rough there. And we'll find out that Chris even has packed his father's gun. Yeah, Bradley Gregg plays Eyeball Chambers. And not until watching the Blu-ray in my home theater did I notice there's some prosthetic on his eye to explain the nickname Eyeball. It's a really poorly done makeup effect. Mm. I noticed he wrote Ali on his fingers. Like when he throws a punch, he's thinking of Cassius Clay. I actually met Bradley Gregg at a convention. I had him sign my Nightmare on Elm Street 3 blu-ray because he was the puppeted guy in dream warriors who we all said looked like Corey feldman but nowadays when i go to autograph sessions it's almost now playing research i'm like we're going to be talking about stand by me so i'm going to ask him about stand by me he actually worked with reiner to make his character softer because chris was his brother at the end of the movie when ace looks like he's going to gut the kids eyeballs like telling ace maybe you should back off a little bit that was all bradley's contribution to flesh out his character mm -hmm. but again it's important i think the stress that he is a bad egg because this is what everyone thinks chris is going to wind up as that chris is living with the legacy that people just think my family's awful i've you know got this milk stash stolen scandal on my permanent record and my brother is running with ace and so what hope is there for me i can get that kind of mentality i saw it more when i was in junior high i had a friend who my mother considered she actually called him a hood i had no idea what that even meant i'm like no he's wearing a jacket not a hoodie but i saw that happen with some of my new junior high friends yeah, me too. No, I remember that in junior high, and maybe I was lucky because I was the oldest in my family, but I remember first day of school reading Roll, and the teacher would pause like, when some kid said here, and then like, are you the sibling of this person? Yes. Like, that was, that's definitely a thing that happened. I, I don't know. Maybe my siblings had to suffer that because of me. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Your reputation follows you if you go to the same school as your siblings. But I think it means something more when you are a poor kid, one that's considered from the wrong side of the tracks. I agree. I had some of those friends, and I would lose track of them. And, yeah, looking at this now, I can see how difficult it must have been for them with that weight on them. To me, they were just my friend from sixth grade, but to other people, yeah, they were not going to amount to anything. But Chris, again, I feel like he's the glue. One of the earliest scenes here, I mentioned it before, that we have crazy Teddy Duchamp, who I think is a bad kid, who I think has many more problems than Chris ever does, wants to stare down a train. Corey Feldman with a big prosthetic to play his burned ear. He's played down a little bit from the way he is in the short story. He, in that one, he dodges cars all the time. Honestly, I don't see dodging a train as being all that hard. <laughs> I mean, the train is coming, and then you get off the tracks. But I had a moment like this in high school when I was on tracks, and I couldn't get off, and I just stared at the train, and every all of my friends thought I was dead. 
See, not so easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I do wonder if Teddy would actually get off those tracks. Like, what is his dad? What a, a World War II vet or a Korean War vet? It'd be World War II. Yeah, the way the story sells it, I'm not sure here. He keeps saying his dad stormed the beach at Normandy, which would be World That's War right. II. But I honestly thought it was bullshit. You know, kids worship their dads. They have a thing in here. Why does Teddy like his dad after what he did to him? The short story plays it out that, no, his dad really did storm the beach at Normandy, but it was the stress of the war that drove him nuts. And I think he can be both. I think he, I think that's the way that I read it, is that he is both a war hero and someone that was institutionalized for mental illness. We find out the most we're going to about Teddy when they get to the junkyard. And there's this whole legend about Chopper, the ball-sicking dog that <laughs> is waiting for them and then turns out not to be there when they jump the fence. And they're kind of just hanging out, like going to the grocery store, almost baiting trouble. And then when they finally see Chopper, who is, you know, a very sweet, like, golden retriever or something, uh, it's it's the owner that calls out to Teddy that his dad was a nut job. And that, you know, I don't know if he was a war veteran or not, but it's quite possible that it was PTSD. But we know that, yes, he abused his kids and had to be removed from the family unit because of some kind of mental breakdown. Yeah, I do love, like, that dog comes out and they've made such a big deal about Chopper. And they start mocking it and how, like, the, the owner, Chopper's owner, just, like, has to defend him. Like, stop picking on my dog. <laughs> like, again, I feel like there's a lot of funny stuff going on. By the end of this, no, it's not a comedy. But I feel along the way, we're going to have a lot of funny moments. And this is where I see some of King's themes coming through. I thought about this really hard, and when I read King's short story, I realized something. Every older person is bad. Every single one. I mean, Gordy's parents ignore him. Teddy's parents throw him on a fire. Chris's parents, you know, the whole family's drunkards and hoods. And, you know, there's the school teacher who stole the money. The store clerk who's in this movie tries to rip off Gordy. And then you got this guy running the dump, you know. It is really, the line that they kept in the movie is, this is where Gordy learned about the difference between myth and reality when he thought he was going to face Cujo, you know, chomper sick balls. That came back to me like a flash. I couldn't have quoted it to you before seeing this movie, but it was so memorable to me when I was younger. And to see it's just this cute little puppy. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. Authority figures are not to be trusted. And I think it plays better here than it did in Shawshank for me. When, again, I kept bumping into the contrivances of that prison and not feeling like it was an honest depiction of prison. Here, this feels like a very honest depiction of small-time life and boyhood and coming to realize that maybe the people that look after you aren't having your best interest at heart. Yeah, I feel like that is one of the lessons of childhood, perhaps. Like, we definitely get it with Gordy, like with his parents. They totally ignore him. They don't care about his stories. Even when Denny was alive, he'd try to get his parents to read Gordy's stories and they didn't want to see him. Like, Gordy knows not to trust adults, but like, that really does feel like that is a lesson that we all go through is like, these are people that raised you. They're older. They're wiser, supposedly. And as you grow up, you learn they don't know as much as you think they do. And, and that's definitely a life lesson you learn. You see that throughout this film i think i learned it when i became an adult i'm like wait you mean adults don't know how to adult <laughs> <laughs>
And that's the, the the awareness of becoming an adult is happening here now. They're talking about, you know, classes. Junior high is going to be different partially because, yeah, Gordy is going to be put in all the smart classes and all the other kids are going to be put towards vocational. I remember having that conversation. Literally, I had a friend that said, well, I guess this is the last time we'll talk because we we're not going to be in the same classes anymore. I mean, I, this movie did bring up a lot for me, just as like a time travel to 86. I, I hear they don't even have shop classes anymore in schools. Like that's something that's gone away because of Common Core. But yeah, I remember there was still auto shop and wood shop and not to be stereotypical, but that were those were the classes that the less smart kids usually took, and they would go to a vocational school, and if you were smart, you took your AP classes. I took shop. <laughs> Not to go all breakfast club, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, we all had to take shop. I remember that, but I do remember the weeding out process started happening, and I do remember... For me, it was just a relief because I had all this pressure to go to college, so if I didn't get in the smart kids class, well, I wasn't going to get into college... It was weird to hear from someone else who didn't have those expectations that they were just couldn't be my friend anymore. And again, you're starting to see that dialogue happen between Chris and Gordy. Chris thinks the world of Gordy. He doesn't envy it. He's like, you write great stories. You're going to make something of your life. I want you to do this. But he's also hurting. Yeah, I remember getting my first job out of college and I worked with people who didn't go through college and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you have a college degree. You could go anywhere with this company. And I, I felt like totally inadequate. I'm like, I, I wish I had more, you know, shop type skills, like where I could fix things. I feel like that would be better. But like, yeah, there is definitely that kind of envy, which I didn't realize until after I graduated college that people like, like, oh, the whole world is opened up to you. And you see that with Chris when he looks at Gordy. Mm hmm. You really do feel bad. I feel like this is Gordy's last time with these kids. I didn't remember exactly how this film ended. We do know from the beginning Chris is dead, but I couldn't remember what happened to the other kids or how they all grew apart. So I really thought this was Gordy's last time with all of them as I watched this and heard these stories. And the one we haven't talked about, the one who I can't find a place for in this story, is Jerry O'Connell's Vern. He seems to be the least to find. We already talked a little bit about Teddy's kind of freak out and crying jag with the junkyard, and every boy, I said in the plot summary, has their moment. But Vern, he's just there. And I couldn't even tell. I was trying to figure out are all parents evil? We know nothing about his parents. We know nothing about his story. We know he lost some pennies. I mean, come on. His older brother's a greaser. Yeah, we know his brother is sort of the nicer greasers. We cut Anytime we cut back to the Cobras, he's the one struggling with keeping the secret that he doesn't really want Ace to know that they even saw this body. They didn't report the body when they saw it because they didn't steal a car. They boosted a car. Again, I like the vocabulary I like the slang in this movie, but they boosted a car and that means the only way they could have seen that body is if they were in a car and if they tell the cops, they're going to go to jail. I mean, that's such teenage thinking. I just love that moment. But that's what I see is that he has an older brother. And yes, if you really boil it down, Vern is just there to get the plot started. He does not have the most interesting story. He's sweet and he's kind of naive and we like him because he brightens the spirits around the other kids, which are more emotionally complex and a little bit more depressed. 
I mean, he's the least mature. If he could only have one candy, it would be cherry-flavored Pez. You know, what the hell is a Goofy? What the hell is a Goofy, though? Marjorie and I actually <laughs> went on a road trip and had this discussion before watching Stand By Me. This film started that discussion, I feel. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a non-controversial thing to say he's a dog. He's just a different breed than Pluto. <laughs> no, that is controversial. He's not a dog. All right, well. Then what is a Goofy? It's a Goofy. It's like, what's a porcupine? It's a porcupine. It's an ugly dog. It's a dog you wouldn't want to have. Pluto is the model dog. Mickey has Pluto. Uh, Goofy just kind of annoys him. Goofy is like some genetic experimentation where they did a Mickey Mouse and a dog together and ended up with this dumb creature. I, I do have to ask you, Arnie, because you watched all these extras. I mean, one of the, the, the scene that really sticks out with Vern is crossing the bridge in that train scene. Because, you know, he's crawling along those tracks. I'm like, <laughs> man, you, you got to get across those things. That's why I felt like Vern. I had a fear of heights like you couldn't believe when I was a kid. So if I had to cross that train, I'd have been doing it on all fours, too. That's when I'm like, damn it, I'm him. W was this just editing? Was there a train on those tracks? There was a train on those tracks. But they weren't there. But it's one they could, like, stop when they wanted, right? No. There's a lot of things that happened here. During the wide shots, when you're doing, like, the helicopter shot, stunt doubles running from a real train. When you see those kids there, though, when they jump off the track, you can tell that's green screen. The wide shot is a composite shot. No. It is a 600 millimeter lens that took the depth of field and made it so shallow. That train was nowhere near those kids, but it looks like it's on top of them. Hmm. I wouldn't have guessed that. It, to me, it definitely looks like a special effects shot. It looks like a real train crossing a bridge. It looks like they're superimposed on that bridge to be running in front of it. No, that scene... Reiner went on and on about how those kids weren't acting terrified enough because that train was so far back and Reiner had to threaten to beat them himself and get them scared of him if they weren't scared of the train. Hmm. Well, it comes through. Again, I praise Reiner. You get the performances you need. I really believe Jerry O'Connell is bawling his eyes as they are trying to cross <laughs> that bridge. He's sweet, though. You know, that character, I think about this is where he lost the comb. And keep in mind, he doesn't have any hair, and yet he brought a comb so that these kids could neaten up their hair when the TV cameras came. He, <laughs> I think for him, it's really important to be a part of the group, that his whole identity is to be in the club is enough. I don't think he has a strong sense of identity. I think he wants to be part of a gang. I think they switched some stuff from the novel because in the novella, it was Teddy who was the really stupid one and Vern was just kind of there. Here, I feel like Vern is just really stupid. <laughs> Teddy is the one that I never was friends with. I remember Teddy's in school, but they always alarmed me. I always felt like I couldn't relate to them. I remember going over to their house and firing off BB guns and just feeling like, yeah, we're not going to be friends. Like, the Teddies were harder to connect with. Yeah, I had a couple Teddies as friends, and it was like you go to their house once, and i like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think Corey embodies this. He's so damaged even though you want the best for him, you don't want to hang out with him. Again, you're always dealing with someone that's doing something stupid and bragging about things that aren't true and just sort of making it all about himself. And it just... So maybe I was a little bit of a Teddy? <laughs> I wasn't going there with that. But, I, you know, I don't believe that you're any one single version of these characters. I think of you in a very special place in my heart, Arnie. <laughs> well, thank you. But yeah, I I just wish Vern was a little bit more 
of a character here. If you're going to send four boys on a journey, each one should have their thing. And Vern's big moment is later on, he finally gets fed up. Teddy's been picking on him this whole movie, and it's, yeah, not too long after the train, he finally just gives up and hauls off and just beats the shit out of Teddy. He's like, who's a pussy now? And beating him up. And I'm like, that's kind of an evolution for him. He, he went from being picked on to finally fighting back. I guess that is a stage of maturation, but it didn't have the weight of the other characters' moments. And they don't have the weight. I mean, I think that's the point is that while they're debating about Superman versus Mighty Mouse, it is Chris and Gordon that are really talking about real stuff and emotional stuff. And when we get that in the campfire scene, which I came close to crying to, but wasn't the scene that I finally broke. I mean, <laughs> that was, you know, they start with some, they soften you up with the comedy. We got to demonstrate that Gordon, in fact, is a good story writer. They kind of teased that for a little bit. There was a flashback in which his older brother complimented him about that skill. And now we're going to see how he weaves. I mean, what's clearly a version of Vern and Vern doesn't even understand that he he turns into this revenge tale for a kid that gets bullied for being lardass and and making everyone vomit. I never saw it as Vern. I can't believe it. I just didn't. I just saw it as a story. Legitimately, the novella has more of these. There are other stories that Gordon wrote later in life that reflect on his moments as in youth. And I just took this as a kid being picked on, fighting back again. All adults are evil and here you have a kid who's picked on every single adult there is chanting and calling him lard ass and which is hilarious when you watch this on tv where it's edited and just lard 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 <laughs> you can't say ass really hmm. uh maybe back in the day i don't know about now but last time i saw it on tv they edited out ass it really depends mm. on the channel yeah yeah <laughs> you can say fuck on comedy central after 1 a.m. usually, yeah. Yeah, sometimes in prime time. It really just depends on what they want. But yeah, here, this is just a fun little gross-out story. Reiner talked about his hesitation to put it in, and he wanted to cut it out in a while. And to me, I see it as not necessarily aiding the story other than setting up Gordon as a writer. But this movie's short, and it might have needed this padding. <laughs> Just to keep a 90-minute length. I'm kind of ambivalent towards it. It does stick out because it's the only story he tells other than the fact that this whole thing is a story told by his adult self. It's a little weird, and it is so over the top. I don't think it's even a particularly great story, but it's creative. No, I think it shows that maturation that at 12 years old, this is the kind of story you would tell. I remember mm -hmm. the kind of stories I wrote around this age, very different than what I would write now. And now, you know, as an, as a 40 year old, he's reflecting on his life. Yeah, you're right. It does work in that way. And again, if I were feeling Shawshank length, I might complain about this kind of excessiveness, but I think it's completely fine to indulge gross out humor. We expect that in a coming of age story. I'll say this, when I was 13, this was my favorite part of the movie. <laughs> of course it was. This is what I was looking forward to, because my dad's like, you gotta see this, but you can't. But there's this great Barfarama scene. Did you guys notice, though, I got that everybody in the pie-eating contest would vomit blueberries, but people not in the pie-eating contest vomited blueberries. It's always bugged me, too, that the hoses aren't lined up with their mouths. <laughs> 
What I think is interesting is that, again, I saw this as very much of him just taking what's around him, looking at Vern, who he always sees as being picked on for being overweight and what have you, and, and giving him a story that he might like. And Vern's response is, well, how does it end? <laughs> what goes beyond this? And it becomes dramatic all of a sudden because here's a character that's not asking about that in his own life, but is needing, I guess, sort of the fictional version to give him some kind of role model that he wants to know what happens next to this version of himself, but does not ask what he's going to do next, I think is an interesting parallel. Again, I took it a different way because Teddy's also asking what happens next. Chris is the only one who gets that as a story. And you look at 12-year-olds, I would ask what happens next. And you look at King as an author, and the question he was constantly asked after Firestarter, after The Shining, after Salem's Lot is, well, what happened to the characters next? And King has always said he stopped writing a novel when he didn't know what happened next. But I took this as not being about Vern. I took this as this is showing Gordy's a good storyteller because he's engrossed these two who started off the story by interrupting, you know, they want to interject their own stories and things. And now that it's over, they wanted more. So I took it as a sign that he was entertaining. And not only that, but Teddy, what is he wanting to see the story go? That he goes home and shoots his father and then runs off to join the Texas Rangers. Again, I think they both are projecting something of themselves in there. But you're right. It, what it basically conveys at its core is that Gordy is good at the storytelling thing and he should keep up at it. This is going to be a gift that he can use for the rest of his life. But what will the others do? What will their story be? Again, I feel like they kind of spoiled it by knowing that Chris is going to be in his mid-30s when he gets knifed to death. It might be more impacting if we see this milk money scene as not knowing his fate. Would he get out of small town? Would he make something of himself? And the short story played with us like that. We read the story not knowing. Here, we know from the start. I guess I've seen this movie and know the story too well. I can't honestly say how this would play if i didn't know yeah i think if it's your first time watching it you you see a name and you don't really think about it till later on mm -hmm. the headline on the newspaper was attorney so that to me said he went to college yeah but are you thinking chris and this i mean this is chris we're gonna find out his story about the milk money right now we've been told this is a bad kid he steals money and this can't be that same chris that's gonna be an attorney i i just don't know if this is your first time watching it if you're lining the two up i think it's an easy detail to miss i also think when i'm watching these scenes and I've been traveling with these kids. Richard Dreyfus is going to pop his voice up every once in a while. I'm not thinking about that car anymore. I'm not thinking about modern day. I'm thinking about this time, this place. I've forgotten about the newspaper. I just have the meta knowledge of knowing how it ends in the movie and the story. But that milk money scene, my God, is that heart-wrenching, right? It's like, this is this true heart of the evil adult story for me the most crushing moment he did steal the money but because he is a good kid at heart he went to return it and instead of putting it back the teacher just turned him in for stealing kept the money bought a skirt and the way he just cries because 
it was a teacher. It was someone he was trusting to betray him so ultimately. I never cried during the scene, but I felt for him and I felt his pain. And again, that's River Phoenix. I'm not sure if any of these other kids have been put in this role that they could be... I mean, we will see Will Wheaton do a crying scene, and I was crying during it. So I don't want to say River Phoenix is the only one that can pull this off, but this character and that conveying that emotion, that ultimate betrayal, is, I think, something that sets him apart. It's easy to do when you look at his career. He had a lot more movies. There was Oscar nominations and things in his future that led many people to believe he was going to be a big star. But I think you can see it here. I think there's something very special about him in this scene. I agree. I think he's amazing in it. And I wonder how he got to be so amazing in it is my question. And Reiner told the story about how he wasn't getting it, he wasn't getting it. And he had to take him aside and say, think of a time an adult betrayed you and got this in one take. And I find this to actually be the most touching scene of them all. Gordy's going to get his a little later. After that, this is on a night when they're sitting watch. They're really only out for two days. They have to camp out overnight once. They're standing watch with his gun. It's when Teddy and Vern are asleep that Chris can show his weakness. I really never felt like this was a group of four kids. I felt like Teddy and Vern were friends and Chris and Gordy were friends. I've always felt like that with groups, though. They're, they're, there's cliques within cliques. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the way that I see it. This is the true friendship. And again, if it had been Richard Dreyfuss reading a news report about Vern, I don't know if it would have inspired <laughs> him to write this story. It's... It is the fact that it is Chris, and Chris was the one in his life when no one else was paying attention to him to say, you've got to get out, you can go all the way, you're a writer. I also really like this moment. It's just a simple detail, but it's one that I prize just personally in life, is that the next morning, Gordon just has a, a private moment where he's sitting on the train track and he sees a deer. His adult self comments that he's never told anyone before, but it was like this magical touching moment. And I've had many of those. I value that. I've, when I travel, and sometimes I'll travel by myself, I've seen things that I've never written down, I've never told anyone about. I do like that emotion, that that feeling. And I like the simplicity of it. It's not Morgan Freeman, like, and I saw a deer and I never told anyone about that. But that deer, it's brown <laughs> fur, reminded me of the dirt of the prison I was in. Like, it was... Exactly. Morgan would have told you how to feel about it. And here... We don't know how he feels about it. In fact, he's just barely even mentioning it. But that private epiphany is a magical thing. I agree. I really reflected on that moment. Probably it really is the moment in this whole movie that stuck with me after watching it for this review because I am married and I share everything with my wife and I thought about it and I'm like, except there are those private things that are only yours because as they say, speaking of it cheapens it and you can't convey it anyway, so you just move on from it. And I also really liked that they left that scene in. It doesn't seem to lead to anything, but this is a story of coming of age and learning that a dead body isn't, you know, us playing detective. It's something solemn. And this is his moment of learning. You don't have to tell everyone everything because if you do, it may cheapen it. You keep some things to yourself. This is all about each of these kids 
taking the next step to their life, whatever it may be. And Gordon is going to be a writer, so he'll be the most sensitive of them. And I do feel like it's the last moment of innocence in Gordy's life and in all these boys' life. I mean, after this, Ace and the gang, Ace is going to find out about that body and they're going to go head towards it. We're going to have a scene with Leech. It like this is that like last pure moment before they have to grow up and become young men, if not men. Yeah, the Leeches is interesting because they have to veer from the train tracks. Up to that point, finding the body is as simple as walking in a straight line. But I can't remember whose idea it was exactly. I think it's Chris. Someone says that they've got to cut their time down by taking the shortcut through the swamp. And man, yeah, I definitely had strong, vivid memories of this scene. <laughs> oh my God. I can't tell you what I felt seeing it at 13, I honestly thought the bug had ripped off his dick. Yeah, there is so much blood on his hand when uh -huh. he pulls that leech out of his underwear. Oh. God, I never thought about it till this moment, and I don't think King was going there, but is this a sign of entering puberty? Is this like a menstruation moment for Gordy? <laughs> Well, I mean, you're certainly welcome to read it however you want. I just see it as, yeah, they have to strip down and, again, thinking about, yeah, their most private areas here now attacked, for lack of a better word, by a leech. I mean, yeah, this is, we understand that when he goes catatonic, this, for many people, would be the end. You would just run away, run home, scream and cry and wouldn't care about the mission. But no, Gordy rebounds and, yeah, we get the final showdown. And we have seen Ace and his gang a little bit. We did see them getting tattoos. We saw a very fun scene of them playing baseball with mailboxes. True story. My dad, when he was like in charge of this church youth group of like young men, he's like, oh, you guys need to watch Stand By Me. It is such a powerful movie about growing up and adolescence. And all they got out of it was, hey, let's go play mailbox baseball. And that's <laughs> what they did. I kid you not. I lived in a small town even when I started now playing. And one morning I woke up to find our entire neighborhood. Somebody had played mailbox baseball, but somehow they struck out on mine. I was had the only mailbox on my block. <laughs> this movie is filled with bad ideas. I got to say, I know now why it's R. It could be for the language, but I actually think the more dangerous element to it is the fact that young people would get very bad ideas watching this movie <laughs> about, yeah, walking down train tracks and knocking over mailboxes and all of us, maybe even pulling a switchblade. This felt like a step too far. I can say as bad as I felt like Keith Sutherland's ace was, the fact that he was potentially going to kill Chris here when they they have the standoff, when both sides have found the body at pretty much the same time and arguing about who's going to carry it home. I found it hard to believe that Ace could be so heartless that he would literally slash Chris's throat. Well, we've gotten this far in the podcast without talking Stephen King's obsession with greasers, right? <laughs> and here it is. We saw this with Sometimes They Come Back. It, this entire novella is basically going to be expanded to 1,200 pages when we get to it, right? And it's always the greasers. And I had that thought, too, when I was a kid, Stuart, when I was reading these. Because there were those kids you feared, right? The ones who you thought would beat you up. Mm-hmm. Gary, he sent away and got the Chinese star and yeah. wrote me the note. He was going to throw it at me and kill me with a Chinese star after school. I definitely remember Gary. Yes, I remember him very well. I remember a trapper keeper. But yeah, that was a moment, man. I didn't know bullies could go down so easy. <laughs> Stuart whacked him with a trapper keeper and down he went. Yeah, he, I mean, he didn't even have a comeback. I think he cried. I was like, I didn't, huh? 
Really? Fight over? It was your total Vern moment. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> but you thought they would kill you, but yet it never went there, right? right? The worst it got is a broken bone and a lot of bruises. But King always goes there. He always has the greaser be a psychopath who does murder and who doesn't just stop by beating you up. And so knowing that, you just got to accept there are some kids who would kill. And I think it possibly might have even been more prevalent when there was less surveillance society. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the people who Ace is hanging around with, I mean, he is worse than Chris's older brother. Chris feels he's a life of a born loser. So that Ace would kill for fame or just kill for fun. All right. Kiefer doesn't play him that insane is my problem. I could go with that as a character moment if Kiefer was a little bit more nuts the whole way. He's come across as a bully. He stole Gordy's brother's hat, but I've never seen him as bloodthirsty until that moment, which is why it rings more false in the movie than it does in the story. Oh, see, I just took it as he's bluffing. He, he's trying to scare him to, to run away. I mean, come on. At 12, someone pulls a switchblade on you and says they're going to cut your throat. I'm backing off, I, I, unless I got a gun. I'm getting out of there. The one thing that I saw with this one, though, he tries to cut Chris's neck. And we're going to find out Chris gets stabbed in the throat. I take it as a bit of foreshadowing. I mean, the knife could have gone right there. And the knife comes, you know, 20 some years later. Right, exactly. The death he was spared here at 12 did come back. I thought that was a little overwritten, quite frankly. But here's the one thing that I do believe. Even though I don't totally buy it, I believe Stephen King believes kids kill. Rage, apt pupil, he sees in childhood that potential. And so we're to think of this character, this ace, as being like the kid that had heard too much Nazi propaganda in that pupil and is ready to commit murder. And so only because of its close proximity to that other story do I kind of accept that contrivance here. I'm not sure if Gordy would have pulled the trigger, though, but I do like the fact that he stands by his friend and, and pulls out the gun. They changed this from the novel. Yeah, it was Chris in the novel, but again, this was rewritten to be Gordy's story. And King actually said after the fact to Reiner, why didn't I think of that? That is such an improvement on my short story. Wow, King said that? Yeah, I know, right? I don't believe it. I know. He said that before. He also said that I think about the ending to The Mist. He preferred the movie version. Oh, God, we'll get there. But no, he's wrong. He also prefers the TV movie The Shining, so. <laughs> That's like the ultimate undermine argument. You like the TV <laughs> version of The Shining, you're done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you there. That's why I don't take Stephen King at his word. The thing that... I feel the novel does better. I keep calling it a novel, novella, short story. I mean, it, it's it's really in that vague area. But it does tell about how each of these boys did get a severe beating from Ace later on when they didn't have a gun. Yeah, exactly. You, you can be a winner in this moment, but uh, yeah, you're, eventually it will catch up with you with someone that bad. But I mean, I think it's more impacting too because Gordy is the one that seemed more fragile, the least likely to pick up a gun of all of them. The fact that he's going to do it for his friend Chris and that Chris has been protecting him this whole time, it was nice payback. And again, the choice too not to claim the body, that they all go home without it and just call the police anonymously was something I did not remember. 
I did remember that. I mean, it does start like us going out to find Coke dealers and it ends with them being more adult about it. And I didn't remember they showed the body, but I saw it here. It was a little shocking. I thought it was one of those, what you can imagine is worse than what we could ever show you kind of things. Yeah. And that did not look like a 12 year old boy, but whatever. Uh, Maybe a 12 year old boy after three days bloated in the sun, but I don't know. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I'm not going to belabor it, but uh, it didn't look like one of them. And I thought they might make the choice to make it look age appropriate. They said he was the same age as they were, but it's mostly abstracted. You don't really get a good look at the face. The point is you see the impact it has on them. And again, that they're by the grace of God. They've been playing around on these train tracks this whole time. It easily could have been them at many points in this adventure. They could be the ones lying here. They get back awfully quick, right? I mean, they had so many adventures on the way here. They were talking about the time. And then they're just like, we called the police and we walked back to town. Come on. It's, it's like Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Yeah. <laughs> that, the journey back's always quick. Well, I think what he points out, and I think that's that why you wouldn't have anything to report is they didn't speak. You know, the whole adventure was the giddiness. But, you know, they just I'm sure it was very long. But they, it might have taken even another day and night, but they walked through it and did not have any more chit-chat or any kind of camaraderie, that they were all in mourning. And then we find out their fate. And one thing Reiner called out, and it's kind of true, their fates don't differ that much from their real-life fates. You get Gordon, who went on to be a writer, Well, Will Wheaton's acting career never quite took flight after that whole Next Generation thing. I understand he's on Big Bang Theory a lot, but he's a writer, and he's very good. I've read a book of his essays. I actually purchased it and read it for fun, and he's really good at that. Corey Feldman was in jail a little bit or and had a lot of troubles, and his character here, Teddy, had some problems with the law and ended up working odd jobs, which I feel Corey's kind of doing with his band and whatever movies he can scrape together. Corey's Angels. (laughs) His pimp service. Look it up. Now, the one that they stretched on was Vern. They talk about him being a forklift operator. The way Reiner said it is this movie ends, Vern finds a penny, and he's so happy he found a penny. And in real life, Jerry O'Connell found the ultimate penny when he married supermodel way out of his league, Rebecca Romaine. (laughs) Wow, I guess. Uh, They start the commentary with Reiner going, that little fat kid married that supermodel. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. Something about being a fat kid in a movie, Chunk, same thing. Like, super thin now and like a very successful lawyer. Jerry O'Connell does say that it's this movie that got him his wife and he didn't realize it. But after they got married, one of her friends revealed that like she had posters of Stand By Me all over the wall and grew up just crushing on all the boys from Stand By Me and she finally landed one. (laughs) Interesting. I'm sure Corey was available too. (laughs) (laughs) She got the doofy one. I mean, he's really kind of doofy in all the interviews I've ever seen him do too. Yeah, he's kind (laughs) of just a guy's guy. He seems like a frat guy, honestly. Uh I have not seen him in much, so I I don't want to comment, but I... No Kangaroo Jack? See, I've seen him in Scream 2, Kangaroo Jack, a lot of that stuff. Just kind of jerky. Yeah. And then River Phoenix, Chris stabbed in the neck and died, and River Phoenix is the one of them who has died of a an untimely death at that. Yeah, exactly. Again, I think it was only eight years. It was 94 that uh, he had his overdose. 
Three, actually. 93. Okay. Yeah. He was 23 years old. Eight years from the time of filming this to the time that he died. Yeah. It is rough. It is a sad situation. You know, unlike Corey, who's easy to laugh at, Phoenix was a talent. Yeah, for lots of reasons. I would be sad if it were Corey, but particularly given that it was Phoenix and the career that he was on the brink of having and yeah it's it it adds extra poignancy i actually feel like although you could easily just cry at this movie because it is so well done and it's sad it does add a few extra tears to know that yes this is the story of the actor as well as the character it is worth pointing out the novella ends differently in the novella all three of them are dead that was the thesis of my paper in college (laughs) yeah Three dead bodies do not stand by you, I think is what I call it. (laughs) (laughs) Reiner decided that was too melodramatic, and so he wrote it so only Chris died, and then he met with King, and King said, yeah, this is based on me and three of my friends, and all three of them are dead now. So, (laughs) melodrama, but yet it happened in real life. But in it, yeah, Teddy and Vern did end up hanging with some bad kids. Teddy died in like a drunk driving accident and killed six others with him. And Vern was at a party and fell asleep and the house burned down and he burned up. And yeah, Chris was stabbed in the throat. I kind of like King's ending better because you have a man who's seen his final friend die versus my closest friend when a long time ago died. And those other guys, well, I just don't call them. Yeah, but that's not the point of this movie. I think that, you know, I relate, you know, because I don't have those dramatic stories, there are people that I went to school with that are dead, but that's not how I see most of those disconnections. The ones that I don't talk to aren't because they're dead to me. If anything, we live in an age where it's easy to reconnect. And I do wonder, will young audiences coming to this movie understand what it feels like to not know what happens to people you were best friends with in sixth grade. Because of Facebook, those ties aren't really severed these days. But I do have those relationships. There are people that I have not reached out to that I do wonder from time to time, what are they doing? How did it turn out? And as those kids walk off and say their goodbyes, we do get back to Richard Dreyfus and an ending that I'm like, son of a bitch, Doogie Howser ripped this off. The typing, my final thoughts on a green screen computer, and narrate while I go. Oh boy, what a flashback that was. I was always just worried he turned the computer off. Like, the whole thing is, is his son is waiting for him to take him and his friends swimming. I always thought he just turned the computer off and like said, nope, the story's not important, erased. I guess he just turned the monitor off. But I, th- that is the point. He's trying to be a better father than his father was. And even though he gets wrapped up and he's introverted as he was as a child, he's got to spend that time with his kids and be a good father. The scene of them in the beginning of the end credits playing is when I weep. Right there. That is the moment that gets me is seeing him play with his kids. His new friends are still 12. He's a better father, and he has 12-year-old friends again, and all of that, that's when I break. Yeah, no, it's it's a powerful moment. I don't know that I read that much into it. I mean, it is just a moment. Who knows how often he does this with his kids, but because 
It was in his thoughts. Well, his kid does say, oh, he always gets like this yeah. when he's writing. It's extra poignant because he just had finished that story and it, it's in his mind. So that, you know, he may take him to the pool every day or he may never do this again. But it is because it's close proximity. It, it is occupying his mind how time repeats itself. And I think that's kind of what I take away from this is that he is uh, lost in the past and seeing a future at the same time. Yeah, I guess I was softened up. I mean, I was tenderized by the story of Chris's death, you know, that hit. But then seeing this and thinking about Gordy's parents and all that, that just, mm, I'm gone. Plus the Benny King song. They've been weaving it in throughout the movie. But, you know, there's a reason why they picked that one in, you know, Can't Buy Me Love or something. You know, this is, it's an emotional song. And it became a number one hit for the second time because of this movie. They got Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, and Benny King to do a new video of it. And number one at the billboards. Yeah, I remember. I watched the video. I had no memory of it. It was on the Blu-ray. And if you ever want to see Will Wheaton dance with Benny King, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, so Jacob Stewart, will you stand by me? Jacob. I don't know where you're standing. I think I do, but... I'll say this. I have never cried during this film. I didn't know this was a tearjerker. Maybe because I saw it when I was immature. And I, I don't know. It didn't hit me like that. I will say, very embarrassingly, because I'm admitting I never cried during this film. The first film I ever like emotionally cried during. 13 in junior high. Feeling like a loner that no one understood. Edward Scissorhands really spoke to me. I cried during that film. Really connected with him but stand by me i always saw this as a funny movie but watching <laughs> it now as i'm older it does seem very more poignant and, and like you said Stuart, people growing up on facebook these days is it gonna mean something you know there, there's people from high school that i i know what they're doing on facebook but junior high elementary school yeah there, there's those people you wonder about there's a lot of universal themes that this movie connects even though it's written for boomers you know, as an adult, it's a movie I really appreciate more than just the Barfarama or the humor. This is a strong recommend. It's a good film. Stuart. Yeah, I feel like this was the right film for me in the 80s. We had The Big Chill, where the boomers got to think about where they were at. We had Breakfast Club, which was a little older for me. That was my brother's movie, you know, where you're in high school and are you going to remain friends? This was my movie. This was the one that I could connect to. I was the right age. It was the right moment. I saw it. You know, if I had, they had taken me to the movie theater, summer 86, I might not have gotten it. But when I saw it on video a year later, even after a year of junior high, I knew what they were talking about. I knew that things did change. I did know about the ending of childhood. And I think for anyone that has experienced that, they're going to be touched by this film. This is, for me, clearly the best movie adaptation of different seasons and one of the strongest ones for Stephen King. It's a high recommend. I agree. This is a strong recommend. I don't know, though, if I had thought about this film and if we came in and reviewed it without watching it, I probably would have remembered a lot of the details. I'd remember the leeches. I'd remember the train. I'd remember chomper sick balls. But I wouldn't have remembered the emotionality of it. And I think when I watched it as a kid, I did relate to Gordy, really. I saw myself as Gordy. I might have had a lot of Teddy and Vern in me, but I, you know, I projected Gordy. I was writing. I wasn't very close to my parents. My siblings were all much older. None were dead, but I kind of wished they were. So, <laughs> they were at college. It's almost the same thing. And 
I had one reaction. And I'll be honest, in the 90s, I was really sick of boomer nostalgia. I'm like, god damn it, stop making movies about how great you were. But coming back to this at 40 years old and being the age of Richard Dreyfuss, I realize it is universal. It is set at the time Rob Reiner and Stephen King were both children, and they're able to really tell their stories and listen to their music through this, but it's a story for the ages. It is one about maturation. And you may not have known a Teddy, but the relations with your friends at a certain time in life does change. And I don't think that Facebook changes that necessarily because you're still only friends with the people who you want to stay in contact with. I have every so often I have that this kid who like hated me in high school sends me a friend request and I just kind of WTF it you know so I gotta think that some of them don't keep in contact and do lose touch with the people who are friends and it may just be a social thing we've seen this in other movies where kids who were friends in sixth grade it's not socially acceptable to be friends Facebook or otherwise in seventh grade which is what they're driving at here so yes I recommend this movie To anyone of any age, I don't care if you're under 18 or 17, you can watch this movie. There's nothing in here that I think is too objectionable. If you learn to say, you know, piss on a rope and fuck, all right, well, you're listening to us. You know those words. And I think it's got more of an edge. I mean, I think people will feel this feels familiar. I mean, The Wonder Years got greenlit on television the next year. The Sandlot would come a couple years. Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. There have been many things that have come out that are like this. But I don't know that any of them have quite the bite, the adult edge. Again, I never saw this as a comedy. To me, this was about the sting of adulthood. And I think that this has still the strongest sting. Yeah, if ranking the different seasons movies, I would put this first. I would put Shawshank as a very close second. And I would like to not ever talk about Apple Pupil again. (laughs) Yeah, I I think we all agree. As an adult... Yeah, Stand By Me speaks to me the most now than Shawshank, which is still a fine film. Not as powerful as when I was 18, 19 when I saw that. And App Pupil, yeah, let's let's forget about that one. You know, I'm not as hard on App Pupil, and I'm definitely not as in love with, with Shawshank. Stand By Me is the only one I'd watch again, honestly. The other two, for me, it's Stand By Me and then a coin flip. Uh, you know, I think since I kind of forgave Shawshank, I guess that puts it in the number two slot. But honestly, I feel like this movie does everything that one wants to so much better. I think they make a great double feature. I'll put it that way. But this one does click with me more. But both movies, they warmed the cockles of my heart and tugged at my heartstrings. So the question really is, is this the best King movie ever? Even just of the ones we've reviewed. And I'm like, putting it there with the shining and i i kind of think this is the best it's kind of nice to be able to debate that i mean just the fact that we're in that league i mean it's been a while since i've been in that league yes (laughs) carrie and shining were a long many years ago and i can't remember a film that really came close although i've enjoyed some But yeah, I feel like I won't really know until I get through all 80-some-odd Stephen King movie adaptations. But it's in the top five, if not top three. Yeah. Top three. I agree. It's it's Carrie Shining, Stand By Me, in some kind of order. I will say that King does rank this, even recently, certainly at the time and even recently, as his favorite movie adaptation of his works. 
Hmm. So it is even better than the TV movie of The Shining. Yes. And some of it has to be that, I mean, it must be powerful to see memories you had as a childhood come to life on screen. So I, I because it's such a personal story, I would think that would play a factor in that as well. Shining, I presume he never did actually, you know, see a floating kid by a t- stop sign <laughs> telling him not to go to an evil hotel. I mean, that was obviously much more fictional. And because so many people say that's their favorite Stephen King, I think he's reluctant to even claim that as one of his favorites. Now, just to talk about this film's legacy a little bit more, because of this movie is the only reason King sold the rights to what's arguably his second most personal fictional story ever, Misery. You know, the story about rabid fans kidnapping an author and making him write. Mm-hmm. He would only sell that to Rob Reiner, and only if he directed. Oh, interesting. And again, Rob Reiner came very close to be the director on Shawshank Redemption as well. I can see why, after Stand By Me, you would trust Rob Reiner to tell not only dramatic stories, but yeah, from an author that normally isn't viewed in that way. I also am going to credit slash blame this movie. We talked at the beginning with the 50s, but man, is The Wonder Years nothing but an adaptation for television of Stand By Me? Yeah, no, that's, again, I feel like it was a a direct response that there is an audience for nostalgia and for seeing a kid's show that is bittersweet and not just sweet. But the voiceover narration by Daniel Stern. It's just those boomers were so full of themselves. Everything was boomers. <laughs> I mean, I loved Wonder Years at the time, but... Yeah, I haven't really gone back, so it wouldn't be fair to say. I, it was a fine show at the time, but uh, yeah, it, it owes a debt to Stand By Me. It always wanted you to cry. Every episode would always end with like, and then I gave up my... It would be like comedy, 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 and then I gave up my bicycle, and they tried to do the tearjerker thing right in the last three-minute montage. But uh, this movie earns its tears. Yeah, and I also think Stealing Home is because of this movie, that Jodie Foster, Kevin Costner film. Remember that one? It was Mark Harmon, and no one remembers it, except me and you. Nope. <laughs> Okay, that Jodie Foster, Mark Harmon film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's, again, there's a lot here. I mean, again, I think Sandlot, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, we see it is more acceptable now and then, or or I think that was what it was called. Christina Ritchie, yeah. Yes, now and then. It becomes popular afterwards to think of a movie starring kids as not being, quote, a kiddie film, and that you can tell dramatic stories with that audience and it's always a tricky balance you know radio flyer sometimes it doesn't work <laughs> oh boy that movie was bad my girl mm-hmm Ooh. <laughs> it's all good until the bees come out <laughs> <laughs> dan Aykroyd in another dramatic role <laughs> yep well i think we're going to keep going with stephen king doing serious dramatic work next week when we review creep show right <laughs> oh i'm scared i am scared of going back to this film i saw this as a kid and it freaked me out you know when we were doing romero and night of the living dead and all of that i did decide i was just going to plow through and see everything that i could on his filmography and so i have seen pretty recently creep show again i i feel good about it i don't know about those sequels but i'm looking forward to the movie next week I can't remember what's Creepshow and what's Creepshow 2, quite honestly. But I know we got Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson. <laughs> Everything you remember is from Creepshow 1. And Stephen King in a yep. solo one-man play. 
there's a lot to discuss. Ed Harris. Ed Harris, yeah, there's a lot of names in this thing. So we're going to start that next week with Creep Show. And remember, if you enjoyed this show, head to iTunes and leave us a positive review. It really does help us out. And don't forget, there's still a few days left to win our copy of the Shawshank Redemption CD. We're giving that away through Facebook thanks to La La Land Records. It's a two-CD set of the movie score. Head to our Facebook page, now playing podcast, and look at the post pinned to the top of our timeline. All you have to do is like our page and comment on that post, tagging a friend and saying who would be your friend in 30 years of prison. So you have until Friday... September 2nd, and good luck. So, Stuart Jacob, thank you for joining me. You bet. And I can honestly say, I never had any friends later on like the ones I had on this podcast. Jesus, does anyone? Boy, the time for discussion is over. This is the way it is. You know this means we're through, don't you? You won't be seeing me around here anymore. No. I suppose I won't. This is the end. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Oh, yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I learned my lesson. I can honestly say it, and I'm a changed man. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original short stories and novels. You played it beautifully, boy. I knew you would. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, Cujo, and dozens more in our archive section. Nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it. Also on our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're going to be a great writer someday, Gordy. You might even write about us guys if you ever get hard up for material. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Hey, we all need friends in here. I could be a friend to you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's there's something inside they can't touch. Hope. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Sorry, Vern. I guess a more experienced shopper could have gotten more for your seven cents. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free.
Now Playing's Different Seasons series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Nothing stops. Nothing. Well, you will do the hardest time there is. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Shut up! I don't shut, shut up. up. I, I grow, grow up. up. And, and when, when I, I look, look at you, I throw up. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. Mark 1335. Always like that one. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. You've no right to come here and say these lies about me. Now playing as a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Well, guys, I, I better get home before my mom puts me on 10 most wanted list. We'll see ya. Not if I see you first. Seventh grade is my least favorite grade of all the grades. That's a tough competition for me, honestly. I'd have to think about that a lot more, but... (laughs) You don't have to weigh in on that, but I just, I, for me... Jesus! But you gotta keep in mind, the, the 80s, the late 80s especially, and this movie may be the culprit, was awash with 50s nostalgia. Teen Wolf 2 had... (laughs) <laughs> the, Teen Wolf 2, that's where you're going? Teen Wolf 2, you know, that was the first one. I was going to go with The Big Chill. Yeah, yeah, that's what I had that written down, The Big Chill. <laughs> the Big Chill, Dirty Dancing, but 50s doo-wop was everywhere. Yeah, no, the 80s was very much a reflection on the 50s and 60s, without a doubt, in lots of ways. You couldn't have gone to Back to the Future, you go to Teen Wolf 2. <laughs> Teen Wolf 2 is like, huh? I mean, that was he played basketball, right? I can't even remember the plot of that. No, Teen Wolf 2 was boxing. He was a boxer, but yet in the big dance scene, it was Do You Love Me? 50s music. It's like, what? Oh, okay. Jesus! Oh, but that is so many songs, though. 16 Candles in 84. Soul Man was the same year as this. Next year. No, 86. Soul Man was 87, wasn't it? No, 86. All right. Let's not talk about Soul Man. Man. (laughs) (laughs) Team Wolf 2 and Soul Man. (laughs) Jesus! All four are in their summer between grade school and junior high. (sighs) Are you crying? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I knew it. It was originally going to be David Dukes, who I know best from Rawhead Rex. Okay, not David Duke, the KKK guy. David Dukes. No. (laughs) I only know one David Duke, and I'm glad he's not in the role, because he wouldn't be very sympathetic. Jesus! Let's get out of here!